0: This podcast is made possible through donations from listeners like you and our partners at Goalie Ashwa Gummies. You can find them at Goalie.com. Use promo code the Show Up dad Foundation to get 10% off your order. Zendurance Active Wellness and Sports Nutrition. Their products are designed to maximize your health. As Zendurance, they strive to support and have a positive impact on the wellness of every hardworking dad. Use my code TheShowUpDad and get 10% off your next purchase. For more info, go to www.zendurance.com. Tallman Equipment. Standing taller than the rest of the competition in lineman Tools since 1952. Give them a follow at www.tallmanequipment.com. And last but not least, Adam Lane Smith. He is an attachment specialist who helps people to heal, connect, and build. Use my promo code, show spelled S-H-O-W, for a 50% discount on his attachment bootcamp course. Thank you. Welcome to the show up, Dad. This is a podcast for hardworking fathers looking to level up their fathering skills and be more than just a paycheck or provider for the home. I am super pleased to welcome none other than Greg Centrone. Greg is a licensed marriage and family therapist. He is also certified to treat military sexual trauma and is an EMDR provider. He has worked with military trauma victims since 2009. Greg feels honored to have worked with the very best both on and off the battlefield. Greg has been happily married for 20 years to his wife, Mandy, and is a proud father to their son, Ezekiel, Benjamin, and named after Benjamin El Saban, and you know what, dude? I'm just super stoked to have you on today's episode. And uh, I just want to have you kick things off, Greg, by telling us a little bit about yourself, brother, if you don't mind.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm super honored to be here. I, I mean, I really can't emphasize enough how important the topic of fatherhood is. Um, it's something that has really changed my life. And, and this issue of anxiety, just um, as you talk about it, you know, fatherhood has kind of brought me into a place of, of healing, um, you know, through my son and through the support of my wife. Um, So I think it's just uh, very fitting to start off with, you know, how, how we came up with the name of our son. As you said, uh, Benjamin is actually named after a good friend of mine named Benjamin Saban. Um, Ezekiel, so my son's name, first and middle name is Ezekiel Benjamin. Um, one of my favorite things about talking about his name is I get to talk about two of like my most favorite people in this world. Um, Zeke is a daddy's boy, um, as through and through. Um, I'm really surprised my wife isn't more jealous how he just takes to me, um, and I really don't know you know where that comes from. But I'm super blessed to to have him as my son and for him to be. Um, a daddy's boy, and for us to be as close as we are. Uh, We adopted Zeke um, in Colorado at birth, and we have an amazing story of just the adoption alone. Um, We have an open adoption, which means basically that Zeke is loved by by everyone. We have a relationship with the birth mom. Uh, We call her Tante Joni, which is German for Aunt Joni. Um, she's involved in his life. He's involved is, in her life. Um, he knows he's adopted. He knows he's loved. Um, it's really a cool story. Maybe, you know, something down the road, uh, if we ever go in that, or if you ever go in that direction, uh, more than happy to be on to, to further discuss that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, naming Zeke, um, you know, I didn't take lightly. I, I love, I love names. Um, and my name is, you know, Greg. There's nothing that exciting about it. I I don't even know exactly what it means. Um, I actually tell people, um, mostly at work, that my name is not Greg or Gregory, but it's Gregarious because of my personality. Um, (laughs) And maybe at some point I will change my name. Jokingly, this is totally off script, but I've wanted to change my name to Gregarious Greg Cintron. Um, I just thought it would be funny but my parents would probably kill me because they probably picked my name for a reason. Um, so back to Ezekiel, enough about me. Um, so basically, Benjamin is named after a really good friend of mine who I met in college. And I would say, you know, this, it was an odd friendship. I, I met him in a school called the Word of Life Bible Institute, which is basically a school that most people go to for some sense of ministry pastorhood, um, you know, mission field, that kind of thing. But it was also like a school typical to the military where you have the guys who are, you know, just going to go out there and be the ranger and whatnot. And they know where their life is headed. And then you have the guys who are in the military because it was that or jail. And, And that's kind of why I was there. I was in a point in my life where it was spinning out of control and and I found myself at this school, and then I met Ben there, and um, I always felt like we were kind of cut from the same cloth. Um, Ben didn't actually fit, you know, either role of, of wanting to be in the mission field, or necessarily being this kind of guy whose life was spinning out of control, Mm -hmm. Um, and many years later, I learned that he was there because he simply made a promise to his mom to go to the school, Um, and that's really what us, brought us together was Ben. My dad was a Vietnam vet. My dad obviously has trust issues because he's a Vietnam vet. And he was like, no, you are not, you know, walking into a recruiter's office and I'm not gonna let that guy, you know, take advantage of you. So, um, so I returned home to, uh, to New York. And, you know, while I was home in New York, I eventually talked to a recruiter, um, joined the army, um, I had a couple of options uh, because my ASVAB scores. And so I, I picked medical specialist. I had no idea what that meant um, at the time and went to basic training at Fort Benning, uh, then went to school or AIT at Fort Sam Houston. And I was detailed to work in the mailroom, you know, for extra duty or, or whatever while I was there. And so I'm sitting there in the mailroom and I was shocked when I see, uh, this letter addressed to Ben Saban. And there's not a lot of uh, Ben Sabans out there. Um, yeah. So I, I was just kind of like, wow, you know, here, here I am in Texas. I met him in New York. I ran into him in Tennessee. And now I'm in Texas. And I'm looking at this letter. Um, but I never did see him at Fort Sam Houston. And then I went to airborne school at, at Benning again. And then I was assigned to my unit uh, at the 82nd at Fort Bragg. And so, you know, I'm going, I'm going through life, living my life. And I go to the PX, uh, for those of you that don't know, basically like a little uh, store on base. And so I'm at this store and I'm getting something to eat and I turn around and literally there's Ben just standing there, you know, in uniform. We're both looking at each other um, in BDU, So that kind of, that's the uniform, uh, you know, it kind of dates the year we were there. Uh, so we're looking at each other. We're just shocked to see each other. I mean, here's like the third state that we had bumped into each other. And um, and he was doing a training there and and he was at Fort Bragg for about a year. And so I spent a lot of time with him. Um, after he left Bragg, uh, he valued our relationship so much uh, that you know, he, he was a groomsman in my wedding. Um, and then we kind of just got separated again. I went to Iraq in 2003. Um, and our unit was kind of, it's really kind of the, the cool guy stories that I hear from clients who come in my office. Um, you know, I, you know, the unbelievable stories, uh, except mine is all on the internet, so I can prove it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I was a, a our unit was kind of, separated and a a company of us was attached to the 75th ranger regiment um, in support of a special operations at that time this top secret you know thing um, called task force 20 and i actually remember a client coming into my office one day many years after i had been out of the military and he said we worked with task force 20 and i wanted to reach over the table and throw my hand over his mouth because you know at the time it was all this top secret stuff Mm -hmm. and i just felt silly like it's nothing is top secret after it happens so yeah um i just i just felt like wow i i I haven't heard that in so long it just brought back so many memories but this was a, a joint special operations mission and um You know, back then, early two thousand three, when the war kicked off, the big thing was trying to find these weapons of mass destruction. Mm. So that's kind of what we were doing. We were we were going, we were looking for those things. Um, And then we were hitting. I don't know if you remember, but they had the deck of cards and they had the ace of spades, which was Saddam, and on down the list. So we were we were going after these high value targets. And um, you know, when I say we, I don't mean me. By any i was supportive of the support of the support um, but so our the task force 20 was known for eliminating two of the aces um, and i don't remember offhand but it was like ace of clubs and ace of something else and um and those were saddam's sons uday and Kuse. and um and it, it was just kind of at that time that was a big deal um But our ultimate mission was to jump into BIOP, which was Baghdad International Airport. That's a, it's a huge place. Um, And so we're on Zulu time, which is, you know, uh, kind of a set time zone, but day is not necessarily day and, and night is not night and that kind of stuff. And literally hours before the jump was supposed to happen, they canceled it and I mean, I went from super excited to have this, what what we call a mustard stain on our airborne, you know, little badge there, um, which says that you did a combat jump. I went from excited to literally scared to death. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't even, you know, I, I was wondering why I even wanted to do that the hours beforehand. Um, and I, and I wrote, well, you know, one of those letters, you know, to my wife, like, You know, I really thought, like, I'm going to die sitting in the tents and looking at, you know, how this is supposed to look and and really realizing that nine million things can go wrong in this scenario. Um, And out of all of these elite guys, we're the lowest on the totem pole. So I thought there's going to be a high casualty rate for sure. Mm. Um, Thankfully, it was canceled. We were told because they mined the drop zone. Um, I have no idea why it was canceled, but even for that short amount of time, um, I found it to be just a huge blessing to kind of rub shoulders with these guys that I would never rub shoulders with again. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, so that was really cool. That was like my cool guy stuff story. Um, after that we returned to our unit and I was a senior medic with a forward surgical team that we call them a fast team and basically this is just a group of medics with a physician assistant and sometimes with like an MD doc and what we do is we go into the combat zone and we set up casualty collection points we're basically the first people somebody is going to uh be brought to for immediately like life-threatening care um in the combat zone and so I, I saw a lot of stuff while i was there and everything to be honest i absolutely loved working in the medical field i loved blood i love guts i loved fixing people i loved helping um, i absolutely loved it and and i was prepared mentally to do it um, as far as, when I say that, as far as adults. Uh, I was looking, I had never thought in my mind at any given point that I would be working on children for any reason whatsoever. And so after one firefight that we had, uh, kind of the dust had settled. And and all these, even talking about it, it it's still, I've talked about it many times, but it's still kind of, uh, it brings... Brings out anxiety. That's what it does. It brings out anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, but but people were coming out of their homes. And, and so this is after a firefight. So we just went in there and killed a bunch of people. And these very people were coming out of their homes now, uh, mostly women, um, bringing their children who had been injured from previous battles and the shock and awe campaign.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and I just remember this one child, being brought to us. And he was probably around eight or nine years old. His innards were on his outsides. Uh, His stomach was kind of wide open and exposed. Um, It it was dry where you kind of want that area to be wet and moist where all your organs are. Mm -hmm. Um, It had this real peculiar stench to him. And I was told that was his bile. And so I was assigned to take care of this, this child. Um, and also another really great friend of mine at the time, uh, Sergeant Jimmy Yakubek, he worked on this child and the child had basically the same effect on us. It, it became this lifelong uh, thing for both of us. Um, but this kid's name was Bassan Mohammed. And I was looking at his eyes and he had this placid kind of look on his face not like he was afraid um, but he was just kind of watching and as we were working on him and trying to get him stable and and doing IV sticks and all that kind of stuff he just kept staring into my eyes and every time I made eye contact with him I felt like he was almost almost communicating but I I really don't know what he was saying um and and so I just remember working on this kid and just man just Doing, doing our very best uh, work, I guess. And, and we finally got him stable. We brought him to the helicopter, he flew off. And I remember just walking back and it was like surreal. I was walking back to this casualty collection point that we had established. And there were just so many children there that I literally don't remember what happened next I don't remember working on anybody else I don't remember I mean I, I don't remember anything um and so that's you know that's something that comes up as far as the effects of war post-traumatic stress um that I you know we'll get into I'm sure later but as far as anxiety and whatnot um so when I when I came back um about you know when I came back from this I I came back a little bit earlier than my unit because I was on uh, what they call stop loss, where they hold you after your enlistment time because you're needed for a particular job. Um, so I came back earlier than my unit did and I got out of the military fairly quickly after that. So I didn't come back with my unit. Um, when I got out, I, I kind of went back to normal life. Um, my wife, you know, and, uh, thankfully, she, we were married before so she saw me before the war and she saw me after the war and what I didn't see in myself she could see in me Mm. um which I have to say was huge because family support is probably the best thing a veteran can have um coming back or or I should say family support is probably the best thing that anybody who goes through trauma can have so Ben was on you know guard duty and a a V-BED, which is a vehicle-borne IED, basically a big truck with a lot of explosives on it, um, went through, I guess, their barriers, and Ben jumped off his guard post, screaming, kind of intercepted the vehicle, like running in front of it, alongside of it, yelling at his soldiers to run, to scatter, um, and they're alerted, and this vehicle detonates, blows up, shoots him forward you know i don't know how many feet it, but shoots him forward um he has injuries but is but i guess just doesn't care about those injuries and he gets up and he just starts providing medical treatment to these guys um, and so while he's providing medical treatment not one of the guys lost their life that day um, and when he was done everybody was stable and relaxing um they just kind of walked over to him and they just thought he was you know had his eyes closed and was resting and he had actually bled out and died so yeah it was an amazing (laughs) I mean it it sounds weird military people Mm -hmm. or I guess desensitized people would understand this it it was almost like I was just like man I wish I could go like that that's that's Mm -hmm. an amazing story um and so My wife and I went to his funeral and he had flyovers and um, just parades, everything going on, a big uh, funeral procession from Jersey all the way to Arlington, Um, you know, cops from every state coming out. It it was really amazing um, to just witness all of that. Um, And I thought to myself, man, Ben would hate this. Uh, He would hate, he would think that we kind of went over the top. And he would not like to have all that attention, um, but it but it, it was really cool. Now there's a, a hall named after him at Fort Sam Houston where he did his medical training out, um, and just so he's got a legacy. So my son Ezekiel Benjamin, um, really. So his name, like I said, Ezekiel Ezekiel is like strength of God or God strengthens, um, and then Benjamin that that's who he is. What I just told you. So. It's kind of like Ezekiel Be- Benjamin is a testament to God's strength in the life and the legacy of Benjamin Saban. Um, and so it, to me, this is something that I have shared with Zeke uh, growing up, age appropriate, of course, you know, throughout the, the years. I mean, he has heard this story um, in, a, in a kid, you know, kid version all throughout his life. So he kind of, he understands the value and he understands the the intimacy of friendship behind his name, and I would like to think, um, just based off the character of that Zeke has, that he realizes that his he he honors this this person that he's never met, and um, a lot of ways through his behavior. Um, so from there, you know, I worked in the med- medical field for many years, um, and the medical field really got too personal. Um, in my life because it, it really, you know, it brought up a lot of triggers for me in the past. And so I had to kind of figure out how to get out of this field. And with no real, I guess, skill set to do anything else. And it just made sense to me. I kind of took a leap of faith and I just jumped into the mental health field. And that came very natural to me. I mean, you'll learn really quickly that I love to talk. So that, that came like very natural to me. And then through our you know a series of crazy events, um, I just ended up working, you know having the opportunity to work with combat veterans like myself. Um, and then basically when you work trauma, you work trauma. so I got into military sexual trauma victims, I got into bereavement counseling of uh, people who have lost loved ones in the military service, active duty. Um, I counsel active duty people who are struggling with anxiety and PTSD, or I like to say PTS, because uh, I don't feel like it's a disorder. I don't feel like it's abnormal, um, but all those kind of people. I, I mean, I'm working with you know the very best of, of who I you know you'd want to work with, and, and it's so it's just been an honor. Um, from there to, to just do what I do every day. So that's me.
0: Well, Greg, dude, I just thank you first and foremost, bro, for your service to this great country and uh, also for sharing that amazing testimony about Benjamin. I mean, dude, I mean, that guy was a true selfless hero. I mean, for him to seek after the well being of those around him putting himself last, you know, putting people before him to the point where he just bled out. I mean, he didn't even think about himself. He was so selfless in his act. I mean, I don't think of any other love greater than that. You know,
1: absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, um, you know, you know, I think when, when people lose somebody close to them, they, um, kind of, you know, my faith doesn't necessarily believe this, but my actions often do. I kind of almost in my head talk, you know, kind of create a conversation and think about what Ben would say. And a lot of times, you know, when I'm doing something and there's some kind of ethical dilemma, mm-hmm. some of my motivation to just do the right thing just comes from the, the way he lived his life. You know, he just he held true to a moral code and he didn't waver from it. Um, Not, you know, when he was in college, not when we were getting in trouble together, not when he was in the military. And I remember thinking to myself that he probably doesn't realize how many people look up to him just because of the way he conducts himself. Um, And so that has really helped me um, not only in my personal life, but also, you know, Ben would have been, you know, an awesome dad. And even though I was a couple of months older than he was, I always looked at him as my senior. And we kind of joked about that, that he did too. And we would joke because of my immaturity and and his kind of old manhood, kind of, uh, you know, whatever personality. Mm-hmm. But but he would have been a great dad. And so when I'm, as a father, I'm constantly trying to instill kind of his moral code and his values um, of honor and integrity and, you know, courage and those kind of things in my son, but also as a reminder, you know, of just doing it myself.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So yeah, he's definitely, you know, a hero, you know, at the end of the day in my book.
0: Absolutely, Greg. Well, it's kind of awesome that you touch base on, you know, anxiety, you know, um, that's our topic we're going to be rolling into, you know, I want to read you this little article that I had heard from a professor from a leading American university. And it said that 40% of people worry about what they worry about never happens. Okay. 30% concerns the past 12% are needless worries about health. 10% are petty issues And roughly about 8% are legitimate concerns. You know, what we call the real storms of life, right? Right. With that being said, 92% of worries are wasted energy. Wasted on things that are not going to happen or going to be fulfilled. How has anxiety affected your family dynamic, Greg, if you don't mind? Yeah, sure. So let me just touch
1: a little bit before I go, because it'll, it'll segue well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you're going over those statistics, you're right. Um, you know, a lot of that, like, logically, we would say this is irrational thinking. Why mm-hmm. are we worrying about, you know, all these things that are are not going to happen? Um, you know, so, and and it's not that we are, you know, dumb. We're, we're not dumb people. There's a a separation and a connection between our bodies and our mind and our soul and why I know it sounded contradictory to say a separation you know and a connection but the reality is is when you go through a trauma or a traumatic event you go into you know I can kind of go into the science a little bit or I guess the theory you know of going into the fight or flight response right and so your body's going to do whatever it takes to make it out of that situation or you know to protect itself and so as you go through life any kind of perceived threat right your body is going to have a reaction to that so when we're looking at these irrational things um, that you know you had discussed people are having a lot of people who've gone through trauma they're having these irrational thoughts um, of because they're projecting this, what if this happens, what if worst case scenario happens, what if, you know, all these kind of things. Um, It's kind of like having 30 different contingency plans um, that they're trying to prepare for, just in case, which is basically impossible. Um, But their body is like, no way, we are not going through this again. And so you develop the symptoms of the racing heart all, all the you know the things that you would get basically anxiety attack panic attacks and all those kind of things, and so we have to get to a place where we can kind of take our thoughts captive command our mind. Um, you know, basically, you know, no one is going to ever hurt me or, or any anybody else in the same capacity that they have done in the past right? That's a kind of a one-time thing. And so, you know, we develop these defense mechanisms and then we have to kind of let our body know like, hey, you know, you're having a panic attack, but that's not going to actually stop me from going, you know, and challenging my anxiety and going to whatever it is, you know, being with my family out in public or being in a place with crowds or whatever that might be. And so it's kind of, you know, your mind being separated from your body and kind of looking at it as, as a separate entity and saying this is okay. And that and that takes a lot of time and support to do that. And so as you can imagine, when I came home um, and returned from war, I, I was really messed up in a lot of ways. and And I didn't see it, you know, because I live with myself. So, you know, I didn't see this big change between the time when I left Iraq and the time when I came back, but my wife did. Um, And of course, I just assumed she was wrong and I was right because I'm a guy. Um, So when we had our son, that was way after, you know, not way, way after, but a good years after I came back from Iraq. And when he was born and we were in the hospital, I remember like a, I literally remember like a flip, a flip, a switch flipping like in my, in my body, similar to when I was at war, there was kind of a switch that flipped and it was like, this is, uh, I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to survive. I'm going to do whatever it takes. And then back home for being a father, I remember all of a sudden I just wasn't that important. It was all about this little pod that was in my hands. Um, I call him, you know, I call him a pod cause I feel like kids are not anything until they can make facial expressions at you, poop their pants. So like, you know, but I just felt like this thing is mine. And, and all of a sudden he was the most important thing to me. Um, but when Zeke was growing up, um, and I'd say closer to, I don't know, eight, nine, 10 months you're around there, um, as he was growing up and I, I was watching him um, and doing these stuff. There, there was a time where he actually he actually locked me out of the house <laughs> accidentally. It had to do with the locks on the doors. And I actually went around the house and I was looking through um through uh, like a screen door and basically, you know he, he had no idea what was going on. And I was trying to get him to kind of just push the little tab up to open the door. And I was getting frustrated. I didn't realize it, but I was basically, kind of starting to get that anxiety, get that panic, um, that, that whole going into a worst case scenario thing. Um, eventually he opened the door. I don't e- ever remember that happening. I don't remember him opening the door. What I do remember is crying on the floor in the kitchen, not knowing where I was and seeing Bassan's face and thinking that I'm working on him and just being a hot mess basically just, just a hot mess on the floor. My wife, um, eventually came home and, you know, I, you know, I, she knew something was wrong. I told her what had happened. I don't know how long I wasn't watching my son. I don't know what had even happened to me. Um, I felt totally inept as a father. Um, I felt like that my wife could never leave him alone with me again. I was scared to death um but I was just right back in, our, in Iraq again um and my wife basically said go get help um and so that's what I did and ironically um I went to the VA um but the uh, VA was not really that helpful at that time it was early on in the war not too many people were showing up from Iraq and Afghanistan and saying I want to go to the VA um that just that just wasn't happening. So, um, you know, I, I actually got more help from some civilian friends of mine um, who knew nothing about combat, who knew nothing about my experiences, but just genuinely cared about me. Um, and they asked me tough questions. They, they didn't hold back. And, you know, I remember just telling them stories and, and constantly thinking like, I'm just telling stories. They don't care. This is entertainment to them. I'm just telling stories. Um, but they did care. And it, and it really started that kind of trajectory towards being able to talk about it more, being able to share with others. I didn't want to, um, by, by no means did I want to. One of them challenged me. He said, you need to tell your wife. I'm like, what, why would I bring that anxiety on my wife, you know why would that, why would I do that to my family. Um, But really there's, there's kind of a lie, you know when when anxiety comes that says, this is your fault, you know Mm -hmm. you're inept you're, you're all these things and we kind of believe that lie and we think, I can't let my loved ones know, you know this is what's going on. but the reality is, is all we're doing is investing in support. It's exactly what we would want our spouse or our child to do for us. But it's not something that we would readily do for them. Um, and I have to admit, it, it's not the same telling a friend as it is telling a wife. And I, and I kind of learned, I can't just dump. I can't dump that on them. It's got to kind of be in context. I, I got to reassure her that I'm still there for you. I'm not gonna you know turn into a lush or anything like that um but my wife and my son have ironically been the just the best support that I, that i could have um my son i say ironically because my son is both very supportive for an 11 year old who's actually going to turn 12 tomorrow um but he's very supportive as an 11 year old in his own way and I don't even think he realizes or I don't even think he knows he is both my greatest trigger as far as seeing you know this kid Basan and and seeing uh you know the the injured children and he's my greatest support and so Mm. one of one of the things that he does right it it cracks me up I I totally hate it right and he would laugh if he heard this. I have been telling him literally since he was two years old, do not put your face in my face, right? He just, I mean, I wake up, his nose is like one inch from my face. He's staring (laughs) at me, like waiting for for me to wake up. And I'm, you know, super hyper startled response. I mean, I will jump out of bed and poop my pants, you know, and swinging and you know and everything else and my wife i mean she she's afraid to touch me she'll touch my feet or something like that mm-hmm. but then here's this kid that i love more than anything else in the world right i would die for him over and over and over again
2: mm-hmm. and
1: his stinking face is in my face all the time i'm not ta- <laughs> i mean to this day all the time he's 11 and his face is still in my face i, I could be eating he shoves his face right in my face um, I'm looking at something. All of a sudden, his head comes right in, right in front of me, and you know my face. Mm-hmm. I have threatened him. I have, you know, acted like I was going to hit him. I have done everything to try to get him to stop putting his face in my face. And what I have learned from that is just that he has taught me self control. Mm-hmm. So many times, we we awesome patriotic tough guy veterans. We say things like. You know, so-and-so did this, and I almost shot him in the face, or I almost knife-hand him or, you know, hit him in the throat. We say all that, but the reality is, is the loud noise goes off, and we are the first one in the fetal position under our desk. We're not doing any of the cool guy stuff that we project, uh, you know, that we are going to do. And so when he puts his face in my face, I I feel all the anxiety. I feel all the stress. I want to headbutt him. And I see his face and nothing but, you know, pure love of wanting to be close to his dad. Mm-hmm. And and it's really helped me, you know, and, and it's same is true about my wife um, to some degree. She she loves scaring the crap out of me. She, she loves to just, you know, stand by a door and I walk by and scare me, mm-hmm. which is, is like torture for a combat vet. Um, but because we have the relationship, though so we have, you know, it's because we love each other that all of that, you know, ends up being okay.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, um, and so really, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I have had, you know, a lot of, a lot of, I guess, symptoms from anxiety from having, you know, I had been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. I, like I said before, I don't, Think disorder has anything to do with it. I think if you send anybody to a combat zone, um, and and I can prove this, you know, really, I, you know, I run several groups of combat veterans, and you take these combat veterans, and they all have these problems that they think are isolated to themselves.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And they tell you how their wife can't relate, or their family can't relate, or nobody can relate, and, and how people judge them. Or how they see people judge them and all those kind of things, Mm -hmm. but you put them in the group together, and they go, "You are just like me. Different war, different branch, different, you know, sex. All these kind of things. You are just like me." And that tells me that if you go to combat or any kind of even a traumatic experience Mm -hmm. of any kind, and you meet somebody else who has that, uh, any, you know, even a different traumatic experience. You develop the same behaviors, right? Mm -hmm. Our world, who's, you know, I'll use military as an example, our world sends the military off to battle. And so they're kind of living their life as people are, you know, fighting on their behalf, so to speak. Most wars are political. So, I mean, I won't go into that. But um, when these people come back, there's a difference. So when I'm in my unit, we're all the same. You know, they, they don't go, Hey, you're different. You have, you have violent thoughts. You have post-traumatic stress. They're, they're not telling me that we're all saying the same things and doing the same things. But when I come home and now I'm maybe the only person in my neighborhood who has been deployed to a combat zone or the only person out of, you know, a massive amount of people, well, those people become the norm. Mm. So that when they're saying their behaviors are normal and my behaviors are abnormal right so it's a description and and so now what do i do go go to the va or talk to a counselor or talk to a psychiatrist or whoever when i start telling them what my behaviors are as a result of combat they tell me that i have a disorder and really all that all that basically means is that out of the 99% i am different from those people Right. These Mm -hmm. countries who go to war together, like Germany and and been bombed, all of those people probably have some form of post traumatic stress. And but they all are going through that healing process together. And a lot of people who go through trauma, they don't go through that healing process together. They go, they get separated and they go to a counselor and that counselor puts some kind of diagnosis on them Mm -hmm. and they believe that diagnosis in such a way that they feel abnormal
2: mm-hmm.
1: when they're they're actually not that abnormal. They're just not surrounded by other people with those traumas.
0: Oh huh, that's interesting. Uh Greg, I wanted to ask you um how does anxiety really what have you seen in your professional opinion? How has it really affected a person's ability to to be an effective father?
1: Sure. Um, so there there's a lot to that right um i mean we could go in any which direction i would i would first say that the majority of the people that i have seen who have children in their life first and foremost Mm -hmm. they absolutely love their children they absolutely love their children i would i would say that many of these fathers came from a home in which a father has been physically there and emotionally absent or literally absent. So when, when you have, you know, two parents or one parent or, you know, no parents to some degree, it, you know, nothing, you're not really getting the modeling of what it looks like to, to be a, a dad, to be a healthy dad. Um, so, when anxiety comes through multiple forms, you know, um, I, I kind of, you know, I work with veterans. So there's a certain amount of, I can be very direct with them and, and I can even make fun of them and they see it as like a term of endearment. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of very direct, but I, I don't take for granted at all that they have a lot of internal stressors going on and they have a lot of external stressors going on
2: Mm -hmm. when it,
1: to some degree, depending on where they're at at life, they have so much demand on them that many times fatherhood goes right out the window, literally just because it's not a priority when it comes down to work demands and my you know dealing with things like anxiety disorders, um, you know, having broken homes, um, those kind of things, they, they literally just think, well, my family's being provided for, and this is my role is to just meet all these other demands, and they don't purposely do it, they just neglect their family emotionally.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Then you have uh, fathers who, same dynamic, they don't have a good model of what a father looks like, they build up the courage, and they do their best with what they have. And they don't get any kind of validation for it or affirmation. Um, If anything, they deal with, and I'm not blaming spouses, but what they deal with with is normal stress of a relationship. Just just very normal day in, day out. You know, life is not a picnic. And relationships are going to have a certain amount of anxiety and stress. Mm -hmm. But they see it as a direct... um, like a judgment on their, on their parenting, Mm -hmm. you know, they see it. And so they're like, I built up this courage. I'm trying to be a good dad. And I'm basically told that I'm a screw up through these, you know, messages. And so they just check out, you know, it's like, and in their mind, many times they rationalize, my family is actually better off without me, Mm -hmm. Um, which is so far from the truth. Right. So, you know, if you look at the statistics of You know you would know obviously but but fatherless homes right Mm -hmm. kids are at an increase in increased risk of neglect abuse um escape teen pregnancy you know getting pregnant to get out of the house um drugs and alcohol you know increase for you know life in prison um, academic problems but really you know all of those are terrible things but the way I look at it just from, you know, the way my mind works, the worst thing is, is that they, that's their only model. So hurt people, we have this saying hurt people hurt people, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So these people are going to say, I, you know, I hate the way my dad was never there for me, or I hate the way, you know, I was treated as a child, but it's the only thing they know. So when, When anxiety hits, right, even though they're trying to do something different, when anxiety hits, they resort back to what they know
2: Mm. and
1: they can rationalize it. So they can say, well, I tried. Well, you know, my wife hates me or um, my authority is undermined by my children or by my wife or by external family living with us or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. Um, And they, they actually act in the very ways that if we can, you know, call them perpetrators to some degree, as their parents, as their abusive parents did to them,
2: mm-hmm. they.
1: But in their mind, they're justified, so they're still doing this cycle. the The really great news is I actually just told somebody this this morning, um, along the same lines of him telling me that he's a dad that will oftentimes just be out working and not spending time with his family. Mm-hmm. Um, and this isn't somebody who is a non-engaged dad. He is just somebody who, you know, he his mind races and he likes to keep busy, but it often doesn't include include his family when he does that. Mm-hmm. And I was letting him know, basically, listen, a father that is screwing up the parenting process, the effects on their kids, are way more positive than the father that is not there. So, you know, I I am a testament to this. I can't tell you how many times I have screwed up fatherhood in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, the great thing is, is I've learned how to say I'm sorry, multiple times in multiple ways, how to be vulnerable, you know, all those kind of things. And what is that teaching my child? It's basically teaching Zeke that you can mess up Hmm. because we can still communicate about it, right? When you mess up, now it's like I am modeling to you what it looks like to apologize, right? And then you have the opportunity to forgive me or to not forgive me. And then Hmm. I have the opportunity to earn back your trust or not earn your back your trust, right? And these are relational things, right? So most fathers don't have that. I I mean, I didn't, I didn't have that when growing up. So, I mean, most fathers really don't have that. So in their mind, when they do fatherhood, they're winging it, right? They're literally just winging it. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't take much for some fathers to be thrown off that, you know, to get to the point where it's not worth it. It's not worth the fight. And, And that is really, The saddest thing that I can, I mean, nobody wants to be in that position of it's not worth the fight, Um, but it's really the saddest place you can be. But the encouraging news is, um, in my experience, is that when you take a guy and you say, hey, here are some practical things to win back your family, Mm -hmm. and they have kind of, it's, you know, ironically, it's the guy who, you know, doesn't read the instructions to put something together again. But when you give them the instructions, and it comes, especially from another guy, and you just go, do this, do this. And trust me, you will start to engage with your family. And over time, you know, they're going to be apprehensive, but it's going to be reciprocated. Mm -hmm. Typically, what they do is they not only meet your standard, they exceed it. They want to have that community and that relationship with their family. It's just that the whole world is against you, you know, and there's not anyone to say what you did was correct or what you did was wrong or try this. We have people in our life that take sides. Mm -hmm. Um, And in, in my field, when I have a couple in my office, I don't take sides. What I tell them is, and this is the truth, I tell them the client is the relationship that's the client because that takes a lot of pressure off of both of you yeah. right yeah. one person's not wrong one person's not right it's the relationship is the relationship working how can we tweak this how can we use your personalities to complement one another and move forward so i totally forgot what the question was but.
0: <laughs> dude i mean that was just so much amazing information that you just gave right there um I myself have a lot of questions, you know, that you've answered Um, people asking me as well, you know, um, why it is that they do the things they do. And one of the things that I've noticed too, is those statistics that we talked about, those statistics are based off of just the father being there. Okay. So, I mean, that's just him being there. That's not him being an engaged, committed, responsible father at all, a show up dad, as we call it, Right. Right. And the statistics don't lie. You know what I mean? The, there's a greater influence in their lives, just them being there, you know? So when you said that it doesn't matter when you mess up, right. Cause you're mm-hmm. going to model healthy way to, to be able to communicate to your kids and say, Hey, I'm taking responsibility. Right. Right. I mean, that, that, that was awesome. I mean, I had never heard it that way before, you know? So I, I thank you for sharing that with us. Um, I had some questions that came in, Greg, Yeah, from our audience, right? And they wanted me to ask you some of these stuff, okay? And uh, one of them, Greg, was, what is the best way you found to deal with anxiety, you know, like via drugs, religion, exercise, therapy, and what would you recommend as a first step? It's a two-part question.
1: Got it. So the best way that I have found personally – um, and I, I'm going to ask from a personal perspective, and then I'm going to also answer. This, this is basically how my life works. I, I am a man of faith, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, and and not not like a blind faith or a religion, uh, not something you know that I that something was taught to, taught to me as a kid, and then I just kind of accepted it like culturally. I mean, I am a man of faith as far as I have looked into, researched, searched, and found. Um, What I believe to be absolute truth, but I work in a very secular environment. I shouldn't Mm -hmm. say very, I just work in a secular environment. Um, The majority of my clients, you know, have are are all walks of faith, or the majority, to be honest, are basically no, no uh, faith as far as religious. Uh, Mm -hmm. Everybody has, has a faith, whether they believe they do or not. So what has worked for me personally has been you know my faith in god and so what I'm I'm gonna briefly just t- touch on is you have to answer that question trying to figure out what kind of lens does the client or the person that this person is asking about what kind of lens is this person looking through mm-hmm. right so if, if they're coming from a faith-based lens right um and so I't I assume you know most people I deal with, in a faith-based level, is has some form of Christianity, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, just real briefly, we won't, you know, turn this into you know something where we have to take an offering, but yeah, basically, yeah. a faith-based view, Christian faith-based view, would be that God is eternal, right? He is has always existed. He's the Great I Am. Mm-hmm. Um, he made the heavens and the earth. Uh, you know, in heaven, he had made angels. Uh, one of the angels thought that he could be God or greater than God, got a big ego about himself, Um, and God, basically, he sinned against God, and God casted him out of heaven, so basically, sin is just any kind of rebellion against God, right, Satan comes to earth, and he deceives man, Um, and why did God make man? God made man to be in community with man, because he loves man, Um, you know, he made Adam and Eve, and he wanted to, you know, basically spend all eternity with them, but what he did give them was free will, and that is why, you know, Satan was even able to deceive them, because of their free will, because of their selfishness, and so God is a holy God, meaning that he's totally, um, you know, separated from all sin, and cannot tolerate sin, so now there's basically a curse on all mankind, because mankind cannot reside in the same place as God. So now they're eternally separated from God. God sends Jesus, his son, relationship. Um, Jesus willingly comes and dies on the cross as a sacrifice, taking on the sins of the world, conquering death, being raised to life again, in which you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of people had were eyewitnesses to this um you know come comes to life and the purpose is is just simply this if you believe and receive jesus as your savior you will have eternal life with with god for all of eternity mm-hmm. and it is only because of not anything that you did other than receiving him um, but it is because god loves his son so much that he sees you through his sacrifice Um, And so that worldview, that lens, um, you know, has a lot of hope. Right. Um, You know, God, God talks about how the birds of the air, he he basically says, hey, why are you worrying? You know, do the birds of the air, you know, are they thinking about what they're going to eat next? Are they storing up food? He's like, no. And and I take care of them. You know, I love the birds, basically, is what he's saying. He's like, what about the flowers, the flowers? You know, they don't they don't they're here today and gone the next. But I dress them so beautifully. You know, they they're more than, you know, in more than King Solomon in all his glory. They look way better than this super rich guy who can buy a lot of awesome clothes. Right. Mm -hmm. And then he says, and what about you? You're my children don't I love you so much more than those basically saying I'm going to take care of you so through this biblical lens right all the all the difficulties that the world throws at me I find for me what works is this relationship that I have established and developed through God because I am not in control I am so relieved that I am not in control and I am so relieved that God is in control and that he's not phased by anything going on in our culture. So, for me, it's it's going back to that perspective of speaking to God through prayer, reading His Word, and getting involved with other other believers, so to speak. Now, the other lens, right? The majority is going to be this secular lens of basically taking God out of the picture. We need to remove Him for the the secular lens, right? We can. We can maybe, you know, talk about having some kind of spirituality, but as far as God and Jesus, there's no submitting to him. So what does that look like? Well, basically, that looks like, ironically, we're going to start with nothing, right? And I I don't mean to say this in a flippant way or crass, and it's just my personality, so I'm sorry if I offend anybody. But basically, nothing and nothing spins around super fast, crashes into each other, and turns into some kind of microorganism that turns into the whole world, right? The Big Bang Theory. And that's why I say you got to have faith, right? There's a faith, you're having faith in one thing or another, or multiple other things. But it is a faith. It's not something, you know, I don't know who you can talk to who was there during the Big Bang Theory. But what comes from that? Well, another theory, the theory of evolution. And so, Basically, we are evolving, right? And, and so we're progressing.
2: Mm-hmm. But what
1: is the purpose? Where are we at in the story with this? So this world lens ultimately is very depressing because we could become the best versions of ourselves for, and then there's a blank. And you basically fill that in for yourself, right? Mm-hmm. And so how long does that that kind of thing last? You're, you know, the best version of myself for my wife right? Until when? Until my wife gets sick and dies? And then, and then what? What was the point of it all? To, to say I had a good life? I mean, you know, what is the purpose? So, so that kind of lens is, is very um, bleak in a lot of ways. And, and to, the reality is, is I, I talk to many people, and I literally, faith may come up maybe 10% of the time, my clients bring up these things they tell me, man, what, what is the point? That is what they tell me. What is the point? And looking through their lens, I don't know what the point is. I mean, they would have to tell me what the point is. Um, so what happens is, is I know the Bible to be inerrant and to be true, right? Per my yeah, faith. Yeah. So for believers who don't believe that, you know, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not whatever. But what I do is I use biblical principles. I use the idea of community. I use the idea of, I mean, how does a huge world religion explode when the person leading it dies, right? People, religions die off when the people leading it dies, right? So it's like the person who doubted Jesus when he was alive, Jesus dies. And now he not only doesn't, you know, doubt him and deny him. Now he's out in the streets risking his very life for him. So, you know, these kind of behaviors would be very abnormal. I mean, that person would be psychotic. But here's the problem. So many people, all of all of the people following him have gone through that same kind of persecution or whatever you want it, martyrdom or whatever you want to call it. And now we have, we even have time based off of Jesus Christ. For so, for somebody to say he doesn't exist, you know, is kind of ridiculous. For somebody to say he's not God, I can, I can understand that a little bit better. But, you know, our, our basis of time is based off of his death. Um, so looking through those two world lenses, you can really kind of identify what would be helpful for people. Now, the practical answer is what is really helpful, right? Um, So your world lens might lead you to maybe lack of purpose or whatever. But at the end of the day, let's talk about what's going to be helpful right now. Sleep. (laughs) Sleep. Sleep is probably the most important thing that if you're going to put all your energy towards, um, you know, midifying, it would be that. Um, your brain cells, um, all the tox not, not toxins, but all your kind of messed up brain cells, they replenish during sleep. That's when you learn. That's when you grow. That's when you process things in your sleep. And it is the number one thing um, when you look at mental health that people lack. So people with you know, um, anxiety disorders, people with even psychosis, people who have hallucinations, the one thing you can go to is how is your sleep and you find out they're not sleeping. And so what do you do? I mean, you, you tackle that issue. Um, stay away from blue light stuff, right? Which is all your media devices. Um, stay away from that, you know, after a certain time of the day. You know, you can say roughly six o'clock, you know, if you wanna pick a, a time. Um, start to develop some kind of sleep ritual in which you maybe take a shower, uh, read a book, lay in bed to where you're kind of setting up your environment for success to have a good night's sleep. And then aim to have at least six hours of sleep. Aim for it. Um, Consistency is always great, but um, in a lot of our, our worlds, it's, it's not, not something, unless you're type A personality, you can pull off. Mm -hmm. Um, But when your body knows what time to go to bed and what time to wake you up, it thanks you, you know, Mm -hmm. it kind of tries to fit that regimen. Um, I would say sleep. I would say, stay away from the news. Um, people tell me all the time because I, I don't watch any news. Um, but people tell me all the time, you can't stick your head in the sand. Let me tell you something. It is impossible to not know the news. Nowadays, everybody is going to tell you the news and the news is so intrusive. You will get it in one form or the other, but to sit there and allow a new station to tell you, you know, what your worldview should be, is also once again. I mean, it just incites fear. It incites a lot of anxiety. It incites helpful helplessness. Um, and when you walk out the door and, you know, you're on TV, you see all these riots and people killing each other and, you know, people hating on each other. And you walk out your door and you look at your own community, you realize that that is not the reality. You know, I don't have any I granted I live in Florida and everybody's 80, but I don't have any neighbors that are attacking each other. You know, in fact it's the opposite. I have neighbors looking out for each other. I have neighbors waving at me when I walk by. So the reality on the news is not my reality. And Best so That's way
2: you've found to deal with anxiety.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. So so that's, you know, Staying away from the news and then working on your sleep Um, and then accountability, having engagement with others. Um, Mm -hmm. It's really easy to get to a place of being depressed um, and it's really easy to get to a place of any kind of anxious or or self-talk if you're Mm -hmm. not accountable to somebody else. When I say something stupid to myself, I think it's the greatest thing in the whole world. I agree. Mm-hmm. But when I say something stupid out loud to somebody else, especially to my, I don't even have to say something stupid to my wife. My wife will just tell me it's stupid, basically, you know, in a yeah, nicer yeah. way. Not really. She's like, that's dumb. So, I mean, that we kind of need that. We need that community with others in a, in a loving way. But we also need it in that way where they're like, no, no, you're way off track. Get back on track. Hmm. So, So those are kind of like three, you know, simple things, you know. <laughs>
0: Yeah, no. And dude, that's just so helpful. I mean, I I like the way you broke it down from your standpoint of, you know, looking at a higher power and looking to a, a hope, as we call it, and then breaking it down to something as simple as sleep. I mean, you're the third person that I've had on here that talked about sleep, you know what I mean? And that's the number one thing that they all recommend, you know, they don't recommend drugs or any of these things. They all recommend getting that good quality sleep, you know, all right. One of the things that came in to us, you know, that I wanted to ask you is you had spoke a little bit about distant dad syndrome when I had spoken to you earlier. Okay, right. Can can you go ahead and describe what that is? And how is that distant dad syndrome? You know what I mean? Contribute? How does anxiety contribute to that in society today? Sure.
1: Yeah. So, I, I mean, I, I think one of the, The. Um, you know, it's kind of like pterodactyl. Right? There's like that silent P in pterodactyl, for those of you that don't know. Um, you know, when you were talking about distant dad, the silent P is the emotionally distant dad, right? Mm-hmm. Basically, dad is there, but dad is not there. Dad is not engaged, right? Um, I'm kind of, you know a behavioralist i guess to some degree. I when I look at the kind of the different distant dads, um, you know, I see the more um ag- aggressive, I guess, dad, the one who's outworking, outdoing things and and justifying it as, you know, I have to get all these things done. And you know, my my family is separated from me. And you got the kind of passive dad who's on Facebook or looking at his phone when his kids are right in front of him. Um, And then you kind of have the more passive aggressive dad who will throw, um, you know, cartoons at his kids or whatnot and then justify that they don't want to be involved with them anyway. Um, So, you know, the thing is with all three of those is once again, it kind of comes back to a father who has kind of stopped fighting for that engagement with his family um and I don't know where they would have started from necessarily but that's where they're at um I have a guy who had recently just told me hey man I'm one of those old school dads this guy's like 36 so I wanted to punch him in the face but he's (laughs) like I'm like what's an old school dad and he's like you know you know my wife does all the cooking the cleaning the raising the kids and and I go to work and, and you know, joking, like, I, I make the money, she spends it. Basically, all he was saying to me was, um, my family has accepted the role that I don't need to be a father. I am just there to exist and make babies, right? Wow. Mm-hmm. And, and so, I mean, it, it's, I told him, like, you know, here, here's the problem with that. Now, there's a million different problems with it, but here's his problem, Right. Mm -hmm. you are investing in something when you have a family. And if you don't invest in this family, you're going to grow up and you are going to think that at some point that you should say, hey, you know, I provided for my child, I did X, Y, and Z. And I'm really, I'm really wondering why my child is um, engaged in all these other things in life and doesn't want to have anything to do with me. Mm -hmm. Um, And the reality is, it's, you know, it's like that song, the cats in the cradle. The reality is, is you were never there for him, right, or her, you were never there for your child during all that time. And you justified it as you were doing your duties as a job as a dad and going out and working. Well, now your kids are growing up, and they're out in the workforce. And they don't have time for dad, Right. And so that will become a problem for this guy if he doesn't, you know, basically wake up and, and that's the that's really the problem of of these distant dad kind of things. But once again, there there is always hope. So when I when I'm talking to these people, usually it, it's not like they chose purposely to be this distant father. Mm-hmm. It's like it it's like I just never even thought about that. You know, I, I just have this expectation and this assumption that I'm gonna raise my kids and they're gonna be thankful. For what I provided for them and it's going to be reciprocated in some way and I always just say you know as many people and as kids that I have worked with and I say hey I always do these things with husbands wives with anybody if I have more than one person in the room and I say hey um how do you know your your dad loves you and they just go, he just does, you know, he just loves me. And I'm like, but how do you know? Like, I know he loves you, but how, how do you know? They never say, well, he provides food for me or he put a roof over my head, right? That's just That's just not something kids think about. That doesn't come until that kid is an adult themselves and then mm-hmm. realizes. Like at my age, I start to realize like, holy cow, my dad was my age at one time. And I always viewed him as super old. And now I'm that guy, right? So now I start to understand he really worked hard. He really provided. Like, I'm amazed at how much my dad provided for me. I'm amazed by all the experiences I've had because of him. But here's the thing. I'm 43, right? So I'm, I'm kind of getting this knowledge now. A child is not thinking about insurance, and responsibility, they're not thinking about anything. How mm-hmm. do you know your dad loves you? Man, because he plays with me. And mm-hmm. really, how hard is that? I mean, for me, to be honest, I, I, you know, I base my age range off of my actual age and my maturity level, which puts me at like 16. So it's not that hard for me to play with my kid.
2: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: I have no problem picking up a stick and just whacking a tree with it and pretending like I'm a ninja. But that is literally all it takes to be a dad to a large extent is just that engagement of a child at the child level, right? It's not throwing money at your kid and buying them something so that you could feel good about yourself because you made your kid happy. Mm
2: -hmm. Your kid
1: is not going to remember those things. They're not going to remember that they had so many GI Joe figures or i mean that's super old i guess nobody plays with gi jos anymore but they're not going to remember any of those things they are going to remember the time that their dad spent with them or the words that their dad said to them mm-hmm. right dads have this ability that nobody else has and that is um bringing their children into adulthood Mm-hmm. So a child doesn't actually consider themselves an adult until dad pretty much says, hey, you're a young woman. When dad says that, it's like, that is the like pinnacle point where it's like kids go, really? You know, like dad's like, you're a man now. They're like, wow. That, that is like the only time mom can say it all day long, but you know what mom always, you know, that's what moms do. Moms are nurturing. So kids don't look at it like, oh, I hit this pivotal point in my life because Mm -hmm. mom said so. No, mom is congratulating me on getting fifth place in a race, right? So that's just not how it works. But dads, you know, a dad can just implement that into a child's life and a child remembers it. So Mm -hmm. dads can speak truth into children in a different way in which moms can. And, And most guys, I mean, we just don't even realize that to be a truth because nobody did it in our life.
0: Hmm. Man, that's uh so true what you said, because I mean, I, I'm guilty of it myself. You know what I mean? Um, It sounds easier said than done. I mean, really, I mean, I don't know how many times I've said, you know, and getting caught up in that lie like you you talked about of going out and providing for my family, you know what I mean? And right. The way you described that was just so awesome. You know what I mean? Where, we're actually giving our families, you know what I mean? The, the authority basically to, to get us, let us off the hook for what we're doing. You know what I mean? And right. oh, that, that was deep brother. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: yeah, I mean, definitely changes my way of thinking, you know what I mean? And, and takes me back because we're talking about awareness, right?
2: right? Takes me
0: back to how, how I was back then and seeing, wow. You know what I mean? Just, just to be able to be like, okay, well, now I understand why I was acting that way or why I did the things I did. It's because I didn't know, you know what I mean?
1: Right. Right. Well, but, and, and also on the flip side, right. Um, mm-hmm. I can, and I did do this in my, in my personal life. I mm-hmm. have kind of looked back in my life and, and saw, you know, a certain amount of my, my dad was my dad is i should say because he's still alive um very non nurturing right mm-hmm. so i mean he's not the dad who's going to tell you he loves you he may tell my sister he loves her because she's a girl and that's just kind of how it works but he's the dad it, it cracks me up but he even does this with my son you know he's you know really old not my dad not my son and and it's still like hey you wimp Like, those are his terms of endearment, right? Mm -hmm. So he's like, hey, you wimp, you know, I'm going to fight you. I mean, that's how my dad says he loves you. So when my dad is calling me Nancy growing up, you know, that is how he said he loved me. Um, But growing up, I didn't see that, right? And Mm -hmm. so when we look at ourselves as these dads and we see ourselves as failure, they're they're failures to some degree in certain aspects. Um, There's a certain responsibility of the child, which if I'm looking at myself as the child, there's a certain responsibility that I have to look past the effects that my dad had on me and actually look at my dad as a person.
2: Mm -hmm. My
1: dad grew up in a home in which the state came and pulled him out from his family and put him in an orphanage, right? So when I'm looking at my dad as being this non-nurturer, right? And then I could go, oh, because of you, then X, Y, and Z. The reality is, is when I look into his life, I'm amazed at what my dad has accomplished with what he was given, right? He didn't grow up with any parents. He literally was orphan Annie. He grew up in the orphanage. Um, And on top of that, his parents were alive, both of them, and nobody came to pick him up at any point, right? He had brothers and sisters. Some of those brothers and sisters actually lived with his parents. So, um, you know, when I'm looking at this guy and I'm thinking, man, I had it rough growing up. And then I'm where I'm at today. And my, my siblings would kind of joke like, you know, with the parents we had, how did we turn out to be so well? Because of the parents we had, that's the reality. Because of the parents we had, they were wounded. We knew what it was like to grow up with those wounds, and we didn't want that for other people. We became really, really well-rounded. And, and that's actually an example I use for some people. Like, I tell them, like, look, you think you're screwing up your kid because you're in that struggle of what it looks like to be a good parent? Because you're in that struggle and you're there trying to be a good parent and screwing it up, your kid is actually going to be very well-rounded. I mean, they, they're... Being exposed to so many different behaviors and things that they actually become fairly resilient as a result. Um, And so, my parents, you know, I never thought that they would stay married and they did. And I, you know, used to tell them to get a divorce all the time. Um, But when I look into the generations before my father, now all of a sudden I see a very clear picture of who my dad is. And I see this very loving father despite the fact that he literally can't say the words, I love you. And then that world lens again of this biblical worldview that one day my dad is going to be perfect in heaven. I'm going to have a perfect relationship with him for all of eternity, right? And so when I look at my dad now, I can see all the wounds that we both have. I can see this world. I can dwell on those things i could be very angry i can be very bitter or i can look past all that and realize that we all go through very similar things mm-hmm. and at the end of the day i mean when do we become the bigger person mm-hmm. you know and so it's just a challenge really to myself not not to everybody else but but basically that there is hope every single time there's hope when we're talking about what anxiety does to us, and all these symptoms that it creates, and how we want to move towards avoidance, or we want to, you know, check out, or, or we want to become aggressive or angry, all of those kind of things. It's, you know, it's, it's what Joseph said in the Old Testament, what, what the enemy meant for evil, God has made good, and, mm-hmm. and that's the reality. They're, they're never quit, like never give up, like never drop out of the marriage. You may take a sabbatical, But you get back out there, you recreate some kind of relationship with your child. I have guys who I just cannot even relate with as far as they have had a child and their spouse has taken that child from them and they have no relationship with that child. And I can listen to them and agree with them that it would be virtually impossible to have a healthy relationship with that child and that it is Better to step away because of the dynamic that was created, so mm-hmm. that that child can grow up with some kind of stability. But what I tell them is, start to write that journal, start to write to that child, start to, you know, when when that kid is 16 years old and he wants to know who his real dad is and find his real dad, he's going to have anger, he's going to have questions, he's going to have all these things. And when you turn around and you pull out this book and he realizes that you have been writing to him for the past 15 years, it's going to change his whole idea of who you are. Mm -hmm. So most of these guys are real fearful that mom is putting all this venom into him as far as who your dad is and, and he's a terrible person and all these kind of things. At the end of the day, we can always be intentional, even if it's not at face value. There are always things that we can do to reconnect these relationships and and make things work. I mean, to the best of what we have, we live in a broken world. We got to work with, you know, with the tools we have in front of us.
0: I like what you said when you're talking about how to look at our parents and and see them with this lens of uh, basically empathy, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And to realize that, hey, my father couldn't give me what he didn't have what he didn't receive. Right. Right. And it's cool to see that because I mean, when you put it in that perspective, you know, we could, you know, I, I don't know how many times I hear, Oh, my dad was this, my dad was that, you know, I'm I'm one of those guys who used to say the same thing. You know, I grew up in a very rough childhood, you know? And uh, with that being said, I could look back and, and see when I, when I ask about his upbringing and how, what he went through, it's mere peanuts compared to, what i went through you know what i mean and i i could actually empathize with him and and actually see the hurt that he received from his father and when you see him in that light it's almost like you have this i don't want to say pity because i don't like to pity people right but but you have this sadness you have this this sense of man no wonder he acted the way he did with me you know what i mean it's just this awareness you know what i mean yeah. You know,
1: never minimize your own experience based mm-hmm. on someone else. The reality is, is your dad did not see his experience the way you saw it just now.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You can you can look at that. Right. A lot of times what I tell people when they're um, trying to go, trying to process their trauma, mm-hmm. I, I tell them write your trauma out in the third person. Right. And then read it out loud to somebody else. Mm -hmm. Uh, And sometimes I even tell them to change the character's name because when you separate yourself from your actual feelings, we actually develop this empathy for people, for other people, but we don't typically do it for ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you were to look at your own story and, and what had happened to you, right, what you would find is that you're absolutely resilient, right, that you had gone through these things and and look at look at you now advocating for fathers mm-hmm. right i mean that is the literally the true epidemic that that we as a world really i mean that is what we should be focusing on if we if we really tackled and supported fathers
2: mm-hmm. you
1: know as much as we have any any other pandemic or epidemic or whatever in the, in this world the majority of our problems would go away Yep, it's absolutely amazing, and and I'm just, I'm really excited about all the resources that dads have. Just the fact that we are two men, right, talking about this. Mm-hmm. Generations ago, that would never happen. No, you know, and the fact that these guys, I mean, your job as a lineman, you, I mean, you're working with like tough guys. The fact that these guys could come together and go, you know what, it's cool to be tough and everything and, and being a dad is just as cool, right? All of a sudden it's like, we're changing, we're changing the cycle, mm-hmm. we're breaking that cycle. And, and that's powerful. The fact that we can talk about the wounds of our dads talk about how it affected us and talk about what we're doing with that, mm-hmm. you know, without those wounds from your dad, it's very unlikely that you would be having a podcast right now about this.
2: Yep.
0: You're no. absolutely right. No, yeah. Man. It's uh pretty awesome. You know, one of the, one of our, our sponsors, uh, line one, one, Gene Glaudman, he always talks about changing the culture, right? He wants to change the culture, change the culture. And we both agreed that the way we change the culture is by changing the way we think, you know what I mean? We, we got to yeah. change men. We got to start raising men back up. You know what I mean? Cause
1: absolutely. for so,
0: for far too long, we've been quiet, you know what I mean? They've, they've emasculated fathers. I mean, they pretty yeah. much took them out of the picture. I mean, since the beginning, since the industrial revolution, when fathers had to start leaving to go to work, you know what I mean? Right. That's when yeah. the downfall started really happening. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I think it's awesome that you said that and how right now with this podcast, what we're doing is we're and you know, with the show up that foundation, which is a nonprofit organization, you know what I mean? We're actually yeah. stepping up to mentor fathers you know what i mean to to have fathers come on here like yourself and like me and others that have been on here and to showcase their trials you know what What they've gone through how they're changing it you know what i mean and and what Mm -hmm. they're doing now you know what i mean and it's it's such an awesome pleasure to have you on here to be able to to speak lives to speak wisdom into our audience brother i thank you greg um we definitely got to do a part two because you have so much knowledge dude it's it's unbelievable brother it is. I'd
1: have, I'd be happy to to do that. I I have never done this before. And I, I mean, you have made it so easy to do. And so I I thank you for that. And it has been a huge honor just to talk about, you know, something we're both
2: passionate about.
0: Mm. Well, awesome brother. And is, is once again, just thank you for coming on here, Greg. And, uh, yeah. you know what I mean? Um, Definitely got to do a, a part two. I want to ask you is if there's any way anybody needs to get a hold of you or anything like that, you know, if they have questions sure. or anything like that, can you share with our audience yeah. how to, how to reach out to you?
1: Sure. Um, so uh, you can, you can probably, I guess the best way would be just to email me. Um, it's a G dot. I wish I had a cooler email address. Um, now I feel like I should have created a cooler <laughs> email address, um, you know, but it's, it's G dot the number seven r o n at gmail.com um and then yeah you know whatever uh, conversations that come from there you know um you know maybe i'll uh, give you my uh cell phone or whatever it is uh you know whatever comes from that but mm-hmm. yeah absolutely i would i would love to talk to anybody who wants to talk about any of these things
0: mm-hmm. and beyond Absolutely, brother. Well, yeah. thank you God's truly giving you a gift, brother, and we see that and we thank you for just opening up and being able to share with our audience, dude, and I thank you from the bottom of my yeah. heart, bro. Thank
2: right. you.
0: Same here. Well, awesome. Thank you so much, Greg.